This morning, we continue our summer series through the book of Jeremiah. And we are in Jeremiah 46. That's our scripture text for this morning, Jeremiah 46. And considering Jeremiah ends somewhere in the 50s, we're close to the end. This has been almost, this will be a 12-week series, um, and we have two more sermons after this as we conclude our time with the prophet Jeremiah. So Jeremiah 46. And as you find that, as we come to God's word, please join me in prayer for the Spirit's illumination. Our faithful God and King, we come to your word ready to hear your voice. We come to your word ready to be changed. We come to your word ready to hear. May your spirit move in our hearts, in our minds, in our souls, in our lives, as we hear your word and as we strive to live into it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'm going to give you permission before we start reading the scripture. I'm going to give you permission to hear, usually when we think of God speaking, we don't typically think of God as taunting anyone, as needling people, as teasing them. And I give you full permission to hear God's voice here in Jeremiah 46 as a bit of a taunter. But listen for it, listen for it, see if you can hear it too. So Jeremiah 46. This is the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah the prophet concerning the nations. Concerning Egypt. This is the message against the army of Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, which was defeated at Carchemish on the Euphrates River by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah. Prepare your shields, both large and small. March out for battle. Harness the horses, mount the steeds, take your positions with helmets on, polish your spears, put on your armor. What do I see? They're terrified. They are retreating. Their warriors are defeated. They flee in haste without looking back, and there is terror on every side, declares the Lord. The swift cannot flee, nor the strong escape. In the north, by the river Euphrates, they stumble and fall. Who is this that rises like the Nile, like rivers of surging waters? Egypt rises like the Nile, like rivers of surging waters. She says, I will rise and cover the earth. I will destroy cities and their people. Charge, O horses, drive furiously, O charioteers. March on, O warriors, you men of Cush and Put who carry shields, men of Lydia who draw their bows. But that day belongs to the Lord, the Lord Almighty, a day of vengeance for vengeance on his foes. The sword will devour till it is satisfied, till it has quenched its thirst with blood. For the Lord, the Lord Almighty will offer sacrifice in the land of the north by the river Euphrates. 
Go up to Gilead. Get balm, O virgin daughter of Egypt. But you multiply remedies in vain. There is no healing for you. The nations will hear of your shame. Your cries will fill the earth. One warrior will stumble over another. Both will fall down together. This is the message the Lord spoke to Jeremiah the prophet about the coming of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, to attack Egypt. Announce this in Egypt. Proclaim it in Migdal. Proclaim it also in Memphis and Taphanes. Take your positions, get ready, for the sword devours those around you. Why will your warriors be laid low? They cannot stand, for the Lord will push them down. They will stumble repeatedly. They will fall over each other. They will say, get up, let us go back to our own people in our native lands, away from the sword of the oppressor. And there they will exclaim that Pharaoh, king of Egypt, is only a loud noise. He missed his opportunity. As surely as I live, declares the king, whose name is the Lord Almighty, one will come who is like Tabor among the mountains, like Carmel by the sea. Pack your belongings for exile, you who live in Egypt, for Memphis will be laid waste and lie in ruins without inhabitants. Egypt, Egypt is a beautiful heifer, but a gadfly is coming from the north. The mercenaries in her ranks are like fattened calves, and they too will turn and flee together. They will not stand their ground, for the day of disaster is coming upon them, the time for them to be punished. Egypt will hiss like a fleeing snake as the enemy advances in force. They will come against her with axes like men who cut down trees. They will chop down her forest, declares the Lord dense though it be. They are more numerous than locusts. They cannot be counted. The daughter of Egypt will be put to shame, handed over to the people of the north. The Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, I am about to bring punishment on Ammon, God of Thebes, on Pharaoh, on Egypt and her gods and her kings, and on those who rely on Pharaoh. I will hand them over to those who seek their lives, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and his officers. Later, however, Egypt will be inhabited, as in times past, declares the Lord. Do not fear, Jacob, my servant. Do not be dismayed, O Israel. I will surely save you out of a distant place, your descendants from the land of their exile. Jacob will again have peace and security, and no one will make him afraid. Do not fear, Jacob, my servant, for I am with you, declares the Lord. Though I completely destroy all the nations among which I scatter you, I will not completely destroy you. I will discipline you, but only with justice. But I will not let you go entirely unpunished. This is the word of the Lord.
Border crossings. I cross the border frequently between Canada and the United States. When I renewed my permanent residency card uh, this past year, I had to document every time I crossed the Canadian border in the past five years. They give you five lines for this in the application form. Five teensy lines to give you the date you left, duration of stay, why you left, and when you came back. Five lines. I had to attach three pages of printed spreadsheet to my form in order to say every time I've crossed the Canadian border in the past five years. Now, I cross the border frequently because I live in two countries. I'm raised in one, and now I live and work and raise my family in another, which is a pretty common thing. There are many here in this congregation who call two or more countries their home. It's common to have multiple allegiances, to have different national identities. And when you belong to more than one country, you have an ear for each country's version of my country is the best, or my country is the greatest. Whether it is Canada, the Netherlands, China, South Korea, South Africa, England, Guatemala, or the United States, each country thinks itself pretty great, perhaps the greatest. Except for maybe Canada, because that might be too much of an American thing to think of itself. This my country is the best or my country is the greatest story that we tell ourselves about the country we live in, it can be quite funny, actually, when it's applied to who has the best food, or who should win the World Cup in soccer, or stuff like that. Then it's fun, it's teasing, you know, we go back and forth, whether orange is the best or the maple leaf. But it can be far more dangerous, far more precarious, when my country is the greatest mentality gets applied to wars and weapons and aggression. It's not so funny anymore. Here in Jeremiah 46, it, it can sound quite foreign to our ears as we read through it. We kind of get lost in the poetry and the metaphors and the place names. But when we enter into this part of Jeremiah, we enter into a world of border crossings and nation states, of national identities and stories that countries tell about themselves about who is the greatest, how they're better than the nation next door. That's the world we enter into here in Jeremiah 46. But I want to back up one moment. So if you have 46 open, put your bulletin or your finger there for a second and go back to Jeremiah 1. Go back to the very first chapter, pages and pages and pages and pages and pages ago, which is also several, several, several weeks ago, too. Okay, found it, Jeremiah 1. Jeremiah 1 is Jeremiah's call story. That's when we kind of got the whole scope of what God was calling Jeremiah to as a prophet giving shape to the rest of the book. So, 
Back to Jeremiah 1, and I want you to look at verse 5. That's where God tells Jeremiah that before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Prophet to the nations. Now go to verse 10. Verse 10. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. A prophet to the nations, and I appoint you over nations and kingdoms. Okay, go back to 46. Jeremiah's calling story in chapter 1 names him as prophet to the nations. That's God's title for him. And in all subsequent chapters since then, until this one, Jeremiah has spoken to Judah, to God's people, about exile to their kings, king after king after king. He hasn't really had any words to the nations. All of that changes here in chapter 46. Because finally, we get the messages from the prophet to the nations, to the nations. And they're stacked up one after each other. So we start with Egypt, that's where we are this morning. And then it's just message after message to nation after nation, to, to Moab, to Ammon, to Edom, to Damascus, to a whole bunch of smaller countries I'm just not gonna list. And then it ends, the book ends, or this part of this book ends with a message to Babylon, to the big bad Babylon. So Egypt starts the messages to the nations, Babylon ends the messages to the nations. But Babylon is next week. That's Pastor Carl's for next week. This morning, we look at Egypt. We look at what it means for Jeremiah to be a prophet to the nations. Last week, Pastor Carl took us through chapters 41 to 43, which described God's people being those who were left behind in Judah after the exile. So a whole bunch of God's people were taken off in exile to Babylon. And then there were people who were left, kind of the unwanted folks. Couldn't really bring anything to Babylon, they were just left behind. They were the remnant. And remember that they went to God, they went to Jeremiah saying, ask God what we should do. Some of us want to flee to Egypt and be safe there, but we will do what God tells us to do. So tell us what God wants us to do. Jeremiah comes back and says, um, stay put. Stay where you are. God is faithful. Stay put. Do not go to Egypt. What do they do? Those who remember, where do they go? They went to Egypt. <laughs> thanks, Jeremiah. No thanks. We're cutting and we're, we're, we're going to go to Egypt. God could not have said stay put. We're going to Egypt. But why did they do that? Why were they defiant of God's word? Why did they flee and seek refugee status in Egypt? There, there's that saying that the enemy of your enemy is your friend. It kind of applies in this case. God's people's enemy was Babylon, and Egypt was Babylon's enemy, so therefore Egypt is kind of our friend now. We're, we're gonna go with Egypt. Because in the ancient Near East, Egypt was the most powerful player that could stand up against Babylon. It was a superpower. 
If there was any country in their general geography that could take on Babylon, Egypt was it. Egypt was the safest bet. And I, I get it, actually. Ancient Egypt was magnificent. Ancient Egypt exuded power and might and victory. I mean, the temples and the statues, the pyramids and the glorious tombs. Earlier this year, I got to walk in the ruins of this ancient Egyptian civilization. And I am a person in the 21st century used to skyscrapers and immensity, and even I was still intimidated as I walked among the ruins of this ancient Egyptian civilization. The power still hangs around it, even in ruins. I get it. There was one, there was one point where we walked into a temple that belonged to Ramses II. Ramses II, pharaoh of Egypt, one of the two contenders to be the pharaoh of the Exodus. This guy had the ego to be the pharaoh of the Exodus. So we were, we were on the border, the Egyptian, current Egyptian border was Sudan. And in ancient Egypt, it was like the farthest flung southern point of the Egyptian kingdom. And Ramses II, being the egotistical ruler that he was, put a ginormous temple at the very edge of his kingdom to say, this is who I am, and if you come here, this is who you are. And he actually never went to this temple. He just wanted his enemies and stuff to know who he was. So when you walk in this temple, you walk in this small opening with four images of Ramses, four statues, three, four stories high around you as you walk into this temple. And you walk into this temple at the level of, of Ramses' feet. So as you walk in, there's these ginormous big toes either side of you. And underneath his feet, underneath these big toes, are carvings of all of his enemies led away in chains. His big toe, you are the same size as the enemies in chains under his feet as you walk into his temple. Ancient Egypt was power. Ancient Egypt was might. Ancient Egypt promised safety for God's people against the big, bad Babylon. And I get it. Given that reputation, it makes sense. But here in Jeremiah 46, God, through his prophet to the nations, takes that national narrative of greatness, of power, of might, of trampling your enemies underneath their feet, and God turns it inside out. Where Egypt goes in expecting victory, they meet defeat. Where Egypt goes in expecting to show power and strength and might like they always do, Egypt is shown as weak. It's filled with cowardice. As Egypt expects to overpower its enemies just like it always does, their mighty armies turn tail and flee and run away as fast as they can. While the places and people are unknown to us in this passage, we know taunting when we hear it. 
right? When I asked you to kind of hear potentially God's voice as a bit of a taunter, did you hear it, right? You have God mocking Egypt in their defeat, this ancient, powerful nation, mocking them in their defeat. Harness the horses, mount the steeds, take your positions with helmets on, polish your spears, put on your armor, and what do I see? What do you think you're going to, what's the answer to that, do you think? A powerful army ready for battle. And, and what does God say he sees instead? They're tiny, they're running away. Goodbye. Victory. God taunts mighty Egypt. And then the rest of the chapter, so that's just the first one, and then the second one, the second part, another message for Egypt, is all about God pointing to Egypt's future defeat at the hands of Babylon. Where Nebuchadnezzar is going to come in, sack your cities, sack their lands, and mighty Egypt's going to fall. Mighty Egypt's going to be defeated. And just to drive the point home, God uses Egypt's own symbols of greatness and power against them. They might just kind of sound like weird metaphors to us, but when God calls Egypt a beautiful heifer, it's actually a compliment. Because being a beautiful heifer is a sign of fertility, a sign of abundance, a sign of life. And God takes that image, that symbol of greatness and life, and overturns it and says, but a fly is coming, and her calves, those mercenaries, Egypt's killers, they're gonna be led to the slaughter. So the beautiful heifer's calves led to the slaughter. Takes an image, turns it inside out. And then Egypt is a hissing serpent. When, when you think of ancient Egypt, you think of like your Sunday school lessons, things like that, snakes are kind of a symbol for Egypt, right? And here God says, Egypt is a hissing serpent. And we're thinking stealthy, we're thinking lethal, and then God just turns that on its head too. That's a snake that's just going into the weeds trying to get away from the person who's attacking it. Turning its symbols of greatness, its story about itself, inside out. Victory becomes defeat, strength becomes weakness. And then God declares, Thus says the Lord Almighty that this defeat at the hands of Babylon is his punishment on Egypt. Not just on Egypt, but on its gods, its kings, on everyone and anyone who depends on Pharaoh for strength, for protection, for safety. And that includes his people who fled to Egypt, choosing Pharaoh over their king. Thus says the Lord God Almighty. Is anyone particularly comfortable with that? Does that sit easily? Passages like this one can lead to some dangerous places if we're not careful. Passages that tell the story of God defeating nations and claiming victory in battles between nations, like this one between Egypt and Babylon, 
have led many Christians and many preachers to jump quickly to our modern context and our political situations using the same logic in the story. Speculating on which country is the greatest. Asserting which nation has God on its side. And then we use God to get all wrapped up in our country's story of who is the best, who is the greatest. Just a couple weeks ago, an American megachurch pastor taught his people on a Sunday morning that because God had chosen Donald Trump to be president, President Trump could take out North Korea, its enemies, with nuclear weapons if needed, to protect the United States of America. A pastor. This pastor had no problem speaking like Jeremiah, the prophet to the nations. Had no problem naming which country is the greatest, which nation has God on its side, complete with nuclear weapons locked and loaded if need be. This application of theological certainty onto political analysis is dangerous. Using Jeremiah 46 and stories like it as justification for that is also dangerous. Because this kind of thinking, that kind of interpretation continues to perpetuate a warring world of tribal gods where my nation's God is better than your nation's God. And my nation's God stops at my borders. That's not what Jeremiah 46 teaches us. That's not what the prophet to the nations is speaking to the nations, speaking to God's people, or speaking to us. Over and over again, throughout Jeremiah's message to the nations. After nation, after nation, after nation, the prophet says, this is what the Lord Almighty God of Israel says. This is what the Lord Almighty God of Israel says. This is what the Lord Almighty God of Israel says. Which seems to say that the Lord Almighty God of Israel has something to say to the nations. That the Lord Almighty God of Israel has a right to speak to the nations. In the ancient Near East, each nation state, each country had its own pantheon of gods. And it was constantly at war with each other to prove whose God was more powerful than the others. And defeat meant that my God was better than your God. They were battling for supremacy, battling to win the title of which country is the greatest. But the Lord Almighty God of Israel is king over all the nations. No one, no nation is beyond this king's rule. It's not a matter of whose side God is on. It's a matter of recognizing that God is sovereign over every 
one. That every nation is accountable to God. Every nation. Whether it's Judah or Egypt, Moab or Babylon, Canada or the United States. Doesn't matter. Every nation. Jeremiah, the prophet to the nations, points us beyond tribe and country, nationalism, and the story of whose country is the best. Except when it comes to food and World Cup, then we can go. But Jeremiah points us to the God who is the Lord Almighty over every tribe, over every nation, over every people, speaking every tongue. We don't belong to nor do we worship a God of this nation or that nation. We belong to and worship our God who is sovereign king over every nation. Which invites us to remember that all of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, who claim him as Lord, are citizens of more than one country. Even if you only have one passport, even if you've only lived in one country, you are citizens of more than one country. Because we are citizens of our king's kingdom first and foremost. A kingdom that knows no borders or boundaries or needs for passports. With a king who rewrites every nation's story to show who is greatest. Tucked away, tucked away in this chapter, you probably didn't even hear it because your ears were still ringing from chariots and marching and defeat, but tucked away in here is actually a small, tiny grace note for Egypt. If you look at verse 26, chapter 46, verse 26. Right after the whole handing them over to those who seek their lives. uh, The last sentence. Later, however, Egypt will be inhabited as in times past, declares the Lord. After the taunting, after the mockery, after the punishment and the day of the Lord, we have this little line of grace. Later, Egypt will be inhabited as in times past. The last word for Egypt, even if it's a small glimpse, is not a last word of punishment, of defeat, but is an offer of life and hope from the king who is sovereign over all nations. May we remember that we are citizens of a different kingdom. May we remember that we have multiple allegiances and one trumps all the rest. So may we trust our king, who speaks to us the words of chapter 46. Don't be afraid, 
Do not be dismayed, for I am with you. Thus says the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our God and our King, we are your subjects. We are your sons and daughters, living in your kingdom and living in this world. May we be faithful subjects, knowing who is our King, knowing the kind of King we serve, and serving you well. Our world belongs to you. Every nation belongs to you. Thanks be to God. Amen.